Oh my God. Why did we ever let adulthood convince us that we needed duvets? I just hate it. I hate having to take the duvet cover off and wash it and then fight to get the duvet cover back on. It's an, it's such a process. This is what I've learned is we don't have washing machines that are big enough to fit an entire comforter inside of it. So the reason we end up doing the duvet method is because you can remove it and wash it and take the insert out. Also, there are people who in the summertime will take their duvet insert out and just sleep with the duvet cover. And I'm like, that's just a sheet. Yeah, that's just a sheet. There's some there's some like sociopathy happening there that I don't trust anyone who does that. I would just like to go on record. I don't trust anybody. Not going in on any deals with them, not like committing to any plans wholeheartedly. I will meet you in the parking deck where it's really well lit (laughs) and there are people around. But yeah, I'm not gonna be alone with you in your house and you look me dead in the eye and say, Yeah. In the summer, I take my duvet insert out and I sleep just with the duvet cover. No. Well, that's like what you do when like you sleep over at somebody's house and they forget to give you a blanket. That's not what you do as an actual adult. No, it's survival only. You're right. Like You're at a stranger's house and you ended up in this room. You didn't expect to end up in. You miss your parents. It's your first time sleeping away from home. And you cling to that duvet cover for your life. It's all you have. And like, it's a little cold, but something's got to protect you from the monster under the bed. And it's going to be the duvet cover. Uh, and you better hope something does protect you because we are the monsters under the bed. Yes. <laughs> and just right. like the things you feared as a child. Welcome to Read This Way podcast. We're the monsters <laughs> under your bed. I'm uh, your co-host, Jace. <laughs> and this is your other co-host. Me. That's the most natural and organic one we've had so far. We're still here. Welcome to the shadow realm. <laughs> The country hasn't um, collapsed in despair yet, so we're still here. We're close, though. Did you see that Dan Quayle was at the inauguration? No. Like I was like, oh, I forgot you existed. I Could totally you, forgot about still Dan. Around? It was just, it was just a ra- a weird moment because, like, I mean, I don't have much against Dan Quayle. He's a, you know, he's a dumb dumb, but aren't we all? Yeah. But yeah, True. it was just kind of like, oh, huh. I guess Dan Quayle does still exist. Hello, Dan Quayle. Hey, Dan. How you been? It's so it's oh good to God, see you're you. S- you're still like alive? That's so crazy. Now, the amount of hugs on that stage, they were not playing. They were like, you know what? I'm going to hug. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, y'all, Miss Rona is still out there, you know? Yeah. Did you see Garth Brooks? After he performed, he was just like, all right, I'm hugging everybody. Everybody come in for garth brooks hug and i was like stay away from michelle obama sir yeah stay away. Um, i think i think garth brooks was an fbi plant <laughs> i think like, like i think they had some dirt on him and they were like okay the theme of this inauguration is unity <laughs> and we can totally sell you out or you can come sing amazing grace like pretty terribly and try to bring unity to the country I was very confused about that whole thing. I was like, I guess I'm happy that Garth Brooks is here because I love Garth Brooks, but also why is Garth Brooks here? He, I hated when he was like, everybody sing with me at home. And I promptly like, I think my jaw actually tightened. Like I was like, I'm not going to sing with you. It was lovely because I could hear that nobody was singing. Nobody was singing. And I was like, okay, well, sorry, Garth. 
Yeah, like Garth, good try. Like, I know that you probably do this at your concerts. <laughs> but Lady Gaga was just like so fucking nervous. Mm-hmm. I think I love because I think in retrospect, I don't love this at all. This is that's the wrong word, but like that she was afraid she was going to die while singing the national anthem. Wait, I'm sorry, what? I feel like that Did was a little no, but I felt like that was a little bit of the energy. During the whole thing, I was like, I don't want to speak anything negative, but I am legitimately worried that at any moment, some yeah. crazy Trump supporter is going to try and kill Joe Biden. I was holding, like, holding my breath. I was like, please just let this go. Let this finish. And, like, nothing crazy happened. Which was so nice. So nice. I was checking The Guardian, and there were no updates. Like, no one came. No one, like, was trying to do anything crazy. Thank God. There was one Trump supporter who came and, like, protested outside the Capitol, and he was very bummed because a whole bunch of people were supposed to be there and nobody was there. Well, they're all scared now. They're like, or they're being investigated. They're like, I'm not going to go out again. I want to be wealthy enough to have a lawyer on retainer. Just get a good Judy. You'll be hearing from a lawyer. Yeah, just have a lawyer on hand who will write letters. My lawyer is just Zelda. Yes. I love the Legally Blonde Airbud crossover. <laughs> where Airbud goes to Harvard. Yes. Airbud Legally Golden. Because he's a golden retriever, isn't he? Yes. Oh my God, we've done it. We've done it. We gotta take this to we gotta take this to a network. Hello, hi. We're here to make your life easy and make you money. We we no, do we have a script? No, no. We okay. So it's just like legally blonde, but like, what if she was a dog? Okay, we're trying to like combine markets here. All the people who love legally blonde, mm-hmm. we're bringing they in have the people. Kids now. They have kids now who love Airbud. <gasps> um, oh, I would never do that. I have to be super transparent with you. I have notes on the second part of King. When I tell you I read it and like have moments that I really like that stuck out to me. But for the most part, I cannot tell you the linear plot of King. I feel like there wasn't as much of a plot in the second half as there was prior to the March on Washington. Yeah. Obviously, I still enjoyed it. I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there that I did not get either of the things that I wanted. So I'm a little bit upset about that, but that's okay. But I feel like up until the March on Washington, we got a very in-depth look at everything. Like there were pages and pages of discussions of what they were doing in Birmingham and Montgomery. And then we do have this amazing coverage of the March on Washington which I enjoyed. But then after that, I, I do enjoy what I feel like he tried to do. Uh, too often, the story with Dr. King ends at the Civil Rights Act. I do appreciate that he offered us this look into the stuff he was doing afterwards. However, I felt like it could have been done better. I think what's ironic is that for me to say, like, I didn't... I feel like I never fully went into the world of King, but what I like did enjoy observing was it, it. It's the conversation of deifying again, like how we deify Martin Luther King, how like 
in the brevity of how we discuss Martin Luther King, it's as though what he did was effortless or that the civil rights movement was effortless. And what I love that is captured in King is the antithesis of that. It's effort filled. For the most part, he is facing every obstacle you can. He's hated. He goes to Chicago. He he gives the I have a dream speech that's so renowned and they hate it. And they still were like, we don't like you after that. After that, it's like you have that high moment. And then you have, I do love the panel where it says truth or myth. None of that matters. All that matters is the legacy. Because yeah. after the March on Washington, that's pretty much, I, I think that was a, an excellent place to put that because that's where most people's understanding of Dr. King ends. And it's like, oh, he worked so hard and he did all these things and he got everybody to get along and then he gave that great speech and then there was no racism ever again yeah like he said that's not how it happened yeah like he said free at last free at last then he went back to his hotel and was shot i feel like you would get that like people would think that that's the history and legacy when there's like so much else that happened exactly i thought it was really great where they have the person saying afterward johnson reasoned Johnson being the new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, reasoned the need for direct action protest was over. He actually believed that the Civil Rights Act eliminated the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved America. What's interesting to me about that is you look at the birth of the Republican Party and you look that like Abraham Lincoln was a member of the Republican Party. And after his assassination, it's so interesting that this echoes back to that. Because mm-hmm. after he emancipa- did the Emancipation Proclamation and then his subsequent assassination, the Republican Party was like, we've done enough for them. Yeah. We, we freed them. They have their land. Okay, some of it's been lied about. But then what they began to focus on was the wealth of white people. And mm-hmm. that's where you see kind of the birth of the Republican Party. So what I find interesting about that, that you bring it up, is that – it's the history of America. It's like, okay, we did enough. Okay, why are you still bitching? We just did enough for you. And we saw that in 2015 after gay marriage was officially legalized. Yes. Now there there are literally people who are like, why are, why are gay people still complaining? We gave you marriage. Now everything is equal. It's like, no, there are still over half of the states in the union where – you can be fired for being gay or where you can you you can still use the quote unquote twinkie defense to say that you were scared so you killed a gay person and get away with it it's it's not that easy not as easy as a stroke of a pen to address one issue and suddenly everything is okay and that's we see it then we see it now we see it like when you were talking about with the emancipation proclamation people just think that like one small event checking off one thing on a list of so many things is just going to solve it and that's just not true yeah and again this fear of losing power the fear of like and i you know i feel like this is kind of more of a literary analysis point of view but mm-hmm. it, it it kind of just goes across the board it's that it's the fear that equality and equity steals power from the majority. And it will always be in my mind and my analysis of the history of how the majority operates. It's where they will always operate from is the fear of losing their 51% hold. Yeah. 
It's the fear of becoming a minority because they know the way they treat minorities. Exactly. Exactly. Sidebar, we totally didn't introduce what we were talking about today in today's oh episode. <laughs> um, so, hey. <laughs> so, there were a few clues. <laughs> we were – no, like we were in it. That's the thing. I thought we, we were getting into some pretty damn good discussion. Yeah, so if you're just joining, <laughs> if you've gotten this far into the episode and you're massively confused, you probably should go back and listen to the last episode because we are covering part two of King by Hoche Anderson. And But you know what? If, if you want to just, you've gotten this far, if you want to just finish this episode, that's fine. You can listen to part one later. Or you cannot, you know, I can't control you. I can only encourage you to do the right thing, as Spike Lee said in his movie, do the right thing. So we're, so we're doing part two of King. And in our first part, we covered all of the graphic novel up until the March on Washington, which covers the Montgomery bus boycott, the protests in Birmingham, and kind of how the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, got started, and how King developed relationships with some of the well-known people in the movement, such as Ralph David Abernathy and Andrew Young, both people that Jason and I know very well because we are from Atlanta. And uh, if you don't know them very well, they were important parts of the movement. And they have streets and all sorts of stuff named after them here. One person who was mentioned but not shown was Bayard Rustin, who is also a very important part of the movement. And if you are interested in um, in learning about him, I highly encourage it. He's a very fascinating figure. So now we are on part two, which starts with the March on Washington, which we've talked about a little bit. And then continues onward to some of the more socialist-leaning efforts King made before his, spoiler alert, for third grade education was assassinated. Which I felt like this kind of historically echoes back to the Alexander Hamilton-George Washington dynamic. Like in a way, JFK has this Washington-esque presence in the mm. Hamilton-esque presence of Martin Luther King. Oh, this very, like, I'm experienced, I know what's better, and you can do what's right, you just choose not to? Yes. I, I guess I do see that, and also in the way that King kind of has, we see it mentioned, not so much in the second part, but definitely in the first part, where King kind of has this stigma of he has these people in Washington and New York that are going to bail him out. When bad things happen. Yes. Again, we see kind of this development of a white savior mentality around mm -hmm. the civil rights movement. Which begins to become an issue as we see a little bit later on when he when he's meeting with Stokely Carmichael. And it is, we're doing all of those things and white people shouldn't be involved in this. This should be a thing we're doing within our communities. Which I understand. But also, when you are a minority... I say that as a minority, you really can't do it on your own. You have to get the majority with you. And it sucks, but it's the unfortunate truth of trying to get anything substantial done. 
And in a movement, there have there has to be some form of help from the outside. Because if there's not, they're just, they're just going to be the like what they end up doing to him. They slander him. They're like he's adulterous. He's Martin mm-hmm. Luther King. All of these things. And th- when the violence happens. And they're like, they start blaming him for it. And they're like, he hightailed out of there. And he's like, I don't want to be associated with it. Mm-hmm. The majority is going to try to eviscerate you any way they can. Exactly. Because they've already made up their mind about what kind of person you are. Yeah, and you're, so you're not going to change their mind. Exactly. It's just a consistent uphill battle to convince them of your personhood, which I understand is extremely frustrating. And it's so... I do love that they show this post-Civil Rights Act, post-March on Washington. You know, I feel like that is kind of the apex of the Martin Luther King Jr. was shown are Mm -hmm. those moments. And when you see his story, the trajectory is always builds and builds and builds to the March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech. And it doesn't necessarily cover afterwards where he's going you know his whole time in chicago where he's looking and and it's a continuation of that narrative he felt in the very beginning of this book where the north tries to act like they're doing better when they're committing similar offenses when you put people in terrible housing and you make it impossible for them to move to better housing or you make it impossible for them to find a decent job, find a decent place for their children, get a decent education, you are committing the same grievances as the rednecks and hillbillies and everything you're looking down on in the South. I really loved the Chicago part. I loved that there had to be this kind of like what happens is MLK inadvertently does become above the own people that he's trying to integrate and help. Mm-hmm. The conversation that he has with these gangs, and he's like, well, let's be nonviolent. And they're straight up like, you don't know what it's like to be here. You don't know what it's like to be on these streets. You don't truly comprehend what situation we're going through. And mm-hmm. it's like such a great humanizing moment because Martin Luther King acts defensively. And he like has to kind of go through this like journey of rediscovery of like where he sits in his own movement. I think it's trying to figure out why you're not having the success you had before. Yeah. I don't know. It's that struggle of believing that you know, believing that you have the answer and being frustrated that people won't just take your word for it. Because that's his thing is he's constantly just like – no, we have to try this and da-da-da-da. And everyone's like, we're not down for nonviolence anymore. And this is after – I thought I thought the Watts Rebellion was in Chicago, but it was in California. But it was a huge – I mean, it's, it's basically on par with the Rodney King riots. You know, mm. it was five nights in 1965 where a very similar thing, somebody was – um, pulled over for reckless driving and it escalated. The police officer ended up having a physical confrontation with him, the person who was stopped, and the the teenager was stu- struck in the face of the baton while a crowd of onlookers saw that. And it, you have six days of unrest in Los Angeles. Mot- and, you know, you've got 
stories of police abuse happening at the same time. So you have this huge thing that's happened and like they're trying to prevent something like that in Chicago and King is trying to tell them, you have to understand something like that. The way these people are being treated, the way the environment that you are forcing them into is going to create something like this. And the mayor doesn't want to listen. He doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to believe it that this is something that could happen in Chicago because he doesn't want to think that he's doing anything wrong. Yeah. He's like, I, and again, he has that same narrative. I've done enough. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like we don't, act, we literally don't actively seek out and try to hurt black people. So why are you coming here into my house and telling me how to run everything? It's like, well, yeah, that, that quote where he's like, I donated to Dr. King's campaign. And it's like, oh, just take care of all of those things that are happening down south because we don't have those problems here. I've been to that part of Chicago. The what? What is it? It's the parts like you have Chicago and then there are those outskirts of Chicago that are just like mm. decimated and unlivable. And it's like to imagine that people actually lived in those houses and continue to live in that housing. Where he's walking with the two guys from the Vice Lords and they're talking about the place where – I think it's like the place where they were both born and they're like, oh, well, that place that's missing a back wall. And he's like, well, did it have a wall when you were born? And they're like, uh, I think so. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. He says, I'm guessing the wall was intact in those days. And he says, to tell you the truth, I'm not really sure. Growing up in that environment, how do you expect people to effectively rise above that? Well, it's survival. It's exactly. not. It's not even living in society. It's survival. I mean, obviously there are sufficient criticisms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I do think there is that kernel of truth to it. Like if you are not getting the base of what you need as a person, if you can't trust that you have a safe place to sleep and enough food to eat and enough food for your family to eat and, you know, enough to feel comfortable in your own home, it's going to be a struggle for you to try and accomplish anything else. I just thought for a moment and got really angry about the argument of like, I want to give hand ups, not handouts. And it's like, but sometimes a handout is a hand up. Uh, I got so mad recently. It was talking about the stimulus checks from the government. And of course, I think it was Fox News had somebody on who was like, oh, I, I know a stimulus checks called a job. Unemployment is at a ridiculous rate right now. It is very difficult. Not only is it very difficult to find a job, but it is not safe for most people to work a job. Get the fuck out of here. But the virus isn't real, Renee. So I guess. I don't Who know. Knew? I don't know what else to tell you. Because the virus is just oh. the virus is fake. I don't know. I feel like I'm a broken record. I have nothing new to say about any of that except it's just wanting to be relevant. Someone told you to feel that way and you felt mm -hmm. it. Did you find it distracting the way the text was laid out? I know we covered this a little bit last episode, but I want to see if you still feel that way. I actually, and I don't know if they did this in the first half of the book, and I was just too tired to notice, but I did appreciate in this later half where we had a little bit of color coding. And I knew that if it was that kind of greeny blue, that it was MLK speaking. And if it was that like, sort of pinky color it was most likely ralph david abernathy 
And then Carolyn sometimes, for the most part, has this kind of gray. And then everyone else is usually white. And they didn't always do that. Like, it wasn't true for the entire book, but for times when there's multiple people talking, there is that color differentiation, which I very much appreciated. The color coding definitely helped me. I still just was like, it's too much text on one page. Oh, yeah. There's so much happening. Like, the entire conversation where they're they're trying to get the Cobras and the Blackstone Rangers to work together, I was like, there's so much. It, it's hard to because it's static. There's no motion. A lot of what exactly. we see in this uh, biography is static conversation in a single room or we're seeing a speech or we do like have pages that are like interdispersed action, which went fast because I was like, oh, things are happening. And then with the confessionals, the witness confessionals, mm-hmm. it's like there's so many moments of like, okay, we're going to walk over here and then we're sitting down for a moment. And we're talking and we're watching people talk and then we're going to get up again and then we're going to sit down and we're watching people talk again. And then we're going to take a 15 minute walk and then we're going to sit down and watch people talk again. I think it's just an interesting observation for me in reading um, graphic works that like my mind does operate in motion. So I, I wonder if it's like if I can see within the graphic that they are in motion, I'm suddenly reading faster versus like. When they're sitting in a room just having a conversation, it's like, does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. No, that completely makes sense. And it it almost makes the scenes themselves just last so much longer because there is nothing happening but these people talking to each other. I feel like what I'm about to say is going to come out wrong. So I feel like I should preface this by saying I do say this with the best intentions. I don't need to know every single word said in every single conversation. I feel like so much of this could have been summarized. Like, especially this conversation with Floyd McKissick and Stokely Carmichael. Like, the gist of the conversation is you, this is the scene where we truly see that MLK is kind of getting left behind with the movement. And there are so many youths rising up who want more direct action, who are getting tired of getting the shit beat out of them and want, are ready to fight back and are seeing what happens when you do fight back, which is they get scared and they do legislation like stuff happens when you fight back. I'm not saying that that's, you know, the correct way or the only way it's a way it's possibly not the right way but you know they're seeing results from it but there's two whole pages just talking about how mlk doesn't like the phrase black power and it's just it's so much and i say as somebody who is long-winded and who consistently overspeaks and overwrites like i feel like there there were just ways where you could make this more concise Do you feel like it almost would have been a better choice just because they kind of did this anyway um, in writing this uh, in this uh, biography if they just stuck with uh, Martin Luther King's point of view? Because I love the I love the way the book ends, which we'll get to it. But I feel like one way that could have remedied all of that, because I think your points are great. I'm like, you're right. Like 
I don't need to know every detail. I just need to know Martin Luther King's point of view in these moments. And I feel like what we ended up getting was kind of very Shakespearean. Like we get everyone's point of view. Yeah. And I know it, it's kind of presented primarily from his point of view, but I, I would agree with that. I, I, I don't know. Cause I do like the insight into the movement. I, that part I find incredibly interesting. It just feels like there's so much that could have been left out. There's so much that got more attention than I feel like it it needed, you know? And if we include everything, then how do we discern what's important? Exactly. And then he sees that little boy get shot. And he's like, no, how jarring. Because it's just so cold-blooded. Yeah. And it, it it's something that, you know, you've, I guess... Obviously, he is probably he's seen people get the shit beat out of them. He's he himself has had the shit beat out of him. But you have these these officials up here who are who have attempted to convince you that they are better, that they behave better. And then you see that they are no different. And then it becomes about like, I I love I love this part. I remember this was the part where I started really kind of like burning through the pages because it's like we see like it's a slow loss of the grip of his movement but then here Mm -hmm. seeing like all of these things tagged on to his movement and then the discussion does kind of turn to he has he has to have that moment of i'm still fighting for what i believe in but is this about my movement or my name am i more worried that they are tying me to violence more so than me wanting to push for a nonviolent movement well, like this beautiful moment of, I'm starting to feel like those of us who adhere to nonviolence should just step aside, let the violent forces run their course, which would be brief mm-hmm. because you can't conduct a violent campaign once everyone's dead. Maybe violence is the way to go. What makes me think I'm such an expert? Lord knows I'm just as tired of being jailed and beaten as anyone else. Maybe it's time to start hitting back. I was actually looking for that exact thing. So I am so glad you read that because that was exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. Oh, that's right. For some reason, see, my I'm sorry, my brain was still back in Chicago. I thought the kid got shot in Chicago. No, yeah, that wasn't in Chicago. That was Memphis. Oh, okay. So Memphis is where they're having the march and he's leading it peacefully. He's attempting to lead it peacefully. Because I think what Memphis should have been was a reconnection to his roots. Like, I think after what many people consider to be a disaster in Chicago, where a lot of people felt like he did not push hard enough for what needed to be done. I think Memphis was a return to focusing on getting equal rights for people, focusing on getting people what they deserved. And it should have been a return to form. It should have been this uh, after a terrible loss. Then it's like, oh, that's right here's what MLK does. Here's how powerful MLK is. And instead it turns into people calling him cowardly because he leaves this march just as things are getting violent and saying, oh, not only is he violent, but when things get violent, he doesn't even help his people out. And I love his defense of himself in the next page because I'm like, you're, you're right. Like, we left, I left because I will not be associated with a violent march. Is that so impossible for them to understand? Notice they failed mm-hmm. to mention it was the police who killed that boy. 
And we can see how that very much puts him in this sort of depression. And it's understandable because this march should have been easy. And instead, it has dealt a blow to his character. I mean, this beautiful. I thought all the speeches were beautiful. And I think the illustration of the speeches, the the like particular inter- intermingling of actual photo footage and mm-hmm. like drawing of them, I just thought it was spectacular. Yeah, I love the way the art style will occasionally switch and change from these, you know, we have the hard lines of this discussion where he's so frustrated to this like very soft pastel palette of him not wanting to do anything, just being very frustrated and then being called to speak. And this is an amazing speech. And I do, I'm a big fan of this speech and, you know, it's very poignant, unfortunately, because this is where he talks about how he would love to live a long life, but he understands that that might not be in the cards for him. And I wish he had been wrong. And actually, uh, we actually have pieces of this speech in our end credits music for the Conspiracy Podcast. I love that. And you, you do see who he is as a person in this speech because he continually says that he under, in his eyes, what he's doing is for, is the will of God, like for people to receive equal rights because everyone is the same under God and for, for people to behave in this nonviolent way and to align themselves with nonviolence because that's what he believes God would want. And he recognizes that he does have these threats against him and he continually has these threats on his life, but he also is doing the will of the Lord. So he's not afraid of what's going to happen to him. He like was weirdly clairvoyant about the finiteness of his life. He had been worried and overly focused, one could say, for a while about dying about being assassinated you know we have that whole conversation that he has with ralph david abernathy in chicago where he's basically telling him i i think the kennedy assassination probably sparked something in him where he realized how easily it can happen and so he wants to have that person ready to take on this movement that is so important to him because he doesn't want anything to happen to it if something happens to him and being stabbed, the the schizophrenic woman who was like, I'm going to fucking take you out. Terrifying. Terrifying, which, I, you know, I say what I said. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I guess when you when someone attempts to kill you once, you don't think that's going to be the only time. <laughs> I guess you would kind of become a little obsessed with it. Especially when you're getting when like the director of the FBI is constantly just like, you should kill yourself before I can do it for you. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's not that's getting a little dark, babes. Like, oh, shit. The, someone someone who's supposed to protect me is threatening my life. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that good to know? There is this additional frustration because, I mean, while I don't think anyone truly could have reigned in J. Edgar Hoover, he was just that kind of asshole. Kennedy definitely made more of an effort to protect King than Johnson did. God. And then the scene at the Lorraine Hotel, it's like, it's what I... This is like the one moment where I did like all of the big text because I was like, oh, they 
it's that it's when you're watching something and you know what's going to happen, but no one mm-hmm. else. It's the dramatic irony. <laughs> hey, English lit. The um, dramatic. <laughs> it's it's just, it's dramatic irony at its finest. It's it's it just is dramatic irony at its finest. Where we are sitting here watching these people live their life, and we know that something very grave and tragic and awful is about to happen. And it's just you. It's the car accident that you can't look away from. I would agree with you. I do love all of the conversation and text we get here because, like you said, we we know what's going to happen. And you want as much space between the opening of the scene and you, and what's going to happen as possible. Selfishly, even though this is something that's happened in the past and you can't control it, there's a part of you that's like, no, talk more. Like, talk to Carolyn more. Talk to Andrew more. Talk to Ralph more. Like, I want to see as many, as much blue as possible. Yeah. Because like, you know what's about don't to happen. Work outside. Like, don't, yeah. don't go outside Yeah, yet. like, don't go out on the balcony. And then just that horror. I know it, we've it talked about the art style a little bit, but how artful is it? Just, like, starting on, um, for the book, it starts on 222, where people are starting to leave, but he's waiting for Ralph David Abernathy. If you're on the browse pages, it's 189. It's this, like, soft, pastel style. And then the next page where he's being left alone, it's this sharp gray and black toned scene, completely different, very Mad Men-esque. It reminds me a lot of like the intro to Mad Men. And then we go back to like some pastel, but it's blue hued this time. And then the next page is the horror of him being shot. So the art style has changed drastically four different ways on four subsequent pages and each is so important in in telling this horrific scene and there's no text it's just it's it it's in it's being read in silence how did you feel about the scene of him being shot i guess on the scrolly thing on page 92 192 is that him or is that ralph discovering him oh i guess that is ralph discovering him yeah that's him being discovered he's looking up okay it took me a second to realize he had fallen backwards. Yeah. Because I couldn't really tell what that scene was about, but that's him being discovered. And then we had, oh, God, I cried with the daddy. Is this real? Because that's, you know, also what happened when he was stabbed. Yeah. Oh, uh, and then the throwback scene from the very beginning, which oh, I always love. I always love a callback. To that very beginning where it's the song on the radio and him as a young boy going to go see his dad. I'm tearing up a little bit. Oh, It's just just stunning. And I love that. I love that uh, Hoche ends it with his death. And that's the end. I think that's beautiful. I think it's such a strong choice. I, I really have to say that I was not like everything that I've said before about like I was not in it. By the time I'd gotten to the ending, I was in it. I was not on board the entire time, but by the time we got to the end, I was absolutely on board. There's so much happening. And it's it's almost like in the entire book, you are thrust into important events. You are thrust into important conversations. 
there's such a focus on the nitty gritty of every single thing that happens. And then right before the end, the focus is on these soft, personal, friendly conversations. The focus is on this close relationship that all of these people have had, you know, very, to be totally cliche, this very forged and fire group that has been through so much together and has this close camaraderie and is is gearing up for the next step of their movement. And just this very calm scene of them just getting ready to go out. And then you're catapulted into this splash of chaotic red and suffering. I think what they've done to you that's really incredible is provided a very visceral, very real, very experiential graphic. Though wordy at times and though static, it is very immersive. And I think it's a great, I mean, I would put this in an AP US history class. I'd be like, okay, read this. Absolutely. And it's so, when he's stabbed, we also get, it's jarring as a reader. You know, we've been in the fourth wall kind of Mm -hmm. observing. And then suddenly we're seeing it from his point of view. Suddenly we're forced to reckon with that situation and that pain of seeing your best friend looking at you in horror and not being able to save you. Like it's not an instantaneous death. It's like there is one moment of like lucidity before passing. Mm -hmm. I do appreciate that Hoche definitely planted that seed of, as a reader, wanting to know more about how this could have happened because they mention that around this entire hotel, motel, sorry, and around this entire motel, and I've seen, I've driven by this motel. It is not big. There are police outside keeping an eye on them. The FBI is out there watching them and probably, I don't know if the CIA existed at this point, but they were probably watching them too. So There is no reason that all of those groups were there and they didn't know what was happening. I'm just going to go ahead and confess. I didn't read all of it, but I read some of the creation process that he writes out at the very end of it, where he's kind of diving into the script and figuring out what he's going to use to tell the story. Oh, I didn't read it. I straight up stopped. I stopped at the final page. The written artist, Hoche Anderson. I was like, okay, I'm done. I was like. I remember I saw that and I was so, I was like, that's it. Wait, no. (laughs) It was very powerful. So this is cool. Reader, if you have a chance to find the King graphic novel, if you are truly interested in learning more about MLK and also really diving into the creative process, I think you will find this fascinating because not only does he go super in depth into Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, but he also super into his own creative process. Super cute. Very cool. (laughs) Just a little light breezy read for like your Sunday afternoon. Yeah, just kind of like doing the thing, you know. So Renee, the fateful question. (laughs) would you recommend this to someone else to read i think i would i would especially recommend it for maybe young college students 
There's this moment, I think, when you go to college and you start taking particularly, well, this is for me, but I think for most college students as well, when you start to take in-depth history and English classes and you start to get more engrossed in literature and historical figures and you find out all of these things that they did not tell you in public school. And it's mind-blowing. So I think this would be perfect for somebody who is just realizing that epiphany, just realizing how much they have missed out on because they have gotten such a sanitized version of history. I mean, I would honestly recommend this to anyone. I thought it was very good. I think it's it's not, you know, <laughs> this isn't Captain America. There is a lot going on in this. There is a lot of reading. So I would let people know going in, but I think it is a worthwhile read. And I, you know, I like anything that goes super in detail. So I would recommend it for those reasons. How about you? Would you recommend King by Hoche Anderson? I would. And I second all the reasons that you said. I would recommend it. Um, definitely. I would go younger. I would say like high schoolers too. If you're in an A-push class or a U.S. history class, and you happen to be covering Martin Luther King, this is your mm -hmm. graphic biography that you should look into. It'll help ground you in it. It does immerse you in the world. It's not just words on a page or a brief paragraph or just a page in a textbook. It's truly, it's a story. It's a narrative given to one of the most important and influential historical figures of our nation. If I were, if I were recommending it to someone to read leisurely, I would be like, don't try to finish it in one sitting. If you need to stop and digest, stop and digest and take in the art style. I think the moments that I enjoyed it the most were when I sat and just kind of like took in the page where I typically do read for plot alone. This was one of the rare moments where I'm looking at the beautiful imagery, the art. And I think part of the thing that did make it beautiful was like, sometimes I didn't know who was talking, but that didn't matter because I thought what I was looking at was beautiful. I would agree with that. And I love the way he changes art styles. I love the way there's inconsistency in a mm -hmm. way. And, and I enjoy it. And like unafraid, unafraid to not commit. The art style is a key part of telling a story. Mm -hmm. The way people are drawn, the, the colors that are used, if there are colors used, the use of real photographs from the time period and screen caps from the time period is all a part of the story. It's not just an art choice. It's an actual key part that you have to pay attention to. Because I'm, I'm glad we stopped at the March on Washington, but I, because I do feel like there is sort of a tonal shift there, you know, in the Chicago, and I'm, I'm sure that also has something to do with the time period that it took for him to make this because it was, I think, an eight-year-long project or something like that. But after Kennedy's death, we see a lot more color. Before that, it's, it's very black and white. And then we we get a lot more of the soft pastel. And I, I'm not sure what part it plays, you know, why it's more important to show it there than prior. But I mean, I I thought it was cool. I'm sure there is a meaning behind it. There typically is. I know that there's a purpose here and I can like intuit all I want, but I just truly can't know. 
that's kind of like the the fun mystery behind it like why did you make these choices like why these colors like what thematically why did you make this choice in telling the story in this particular way or visualizing the story in this particular way well and you can like i'm sure over the course of nine years like you were saying like that's why it changed so much and that's why we see some panels that are in color because he probably went back and added stuff in so you're seeing like panels that were drawn five years apart standing next to each other on a page oh my gosh I'm sorry, I just got to the point where, okay, I found out why I can't find anything about Carolyn Longstreet. It's because she was a fictional character. She was a fictional insert into the story. <gasps> okay. I found the whole page at the end where he talks about creating her. So this is, so this is a work of fiction, technically. Part, I mean, I guess, you know, parts of it are necessarily going to be a work of fiction. Like, you gotta call QAnon. No. No, don't tell them. Don't give them any more fodder. Exactly. Don't don't give them any more gasoline to put on their weird fire. But I mean, I guess part of it is going to be fictionalized because there's no way for us to know, you know, verbatim what happened in some of these conversations or like what the mentality was of this figure. I would say it's I would say it's mostly nonfiction. Oh, agreed. Yes. Mostly nonfiction with one character created. Yeah, just like a little, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a self-insert, but, you know, just a little fiction. He said he he threw her in to kind of like break up the little boys club that was happening. And you know what? I feel him. Yeah, I agree. You know, pull that little lever, let some lightning strike, throw in some feminine energy. We'll always 100% support that. Femininity. Femininity. So the next one we're doing, if you want to get super excited, reader listeners, is is called Came the Dawn. It's a collection of stories illustrated by Wallace Wood, who was an animator in like the 40s, I would say the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And most of them is leans very heavily on the, not film noir, maybe like country noir if that's a thing because i feel like film noir is very like private detective and a little more upper class these people are working class this is the noir of working class people and very much that dark macabre focus he apparently illustrated for some tales from the crypt comics We'll be discussing a few comics with the Crypt Keeper in it. And apparently there was a, not knockoff, a uh, a similar character called the Vault Keeper. So we're going to be discussing some of those stories. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it'll be a nice little scary palate cleanser between this very heavy material that we just covered and the very heavy material we're going to be covering after that. So strap in for some spooky next time. I love a good Halloween in February. I love a good Halloween anytime. We hope you'll join us next time. Because if you don't, Jace will cry. I'll come find you. (laughs) I know where you live, listener. (laughs) And I know if you're listening and I know if you're not. If you've clicked the play button once, Jace has you on an Excel spreadsheet.
I do. And then Snowshoe has a little marker next to a piece of paper and she takes her paws and just puts a mark. She's like, meow. Be on the lookout on our social media. I have been in discussions with Renee. So if you ever feel that you find yourself wondering, how can I contribute to their cause, you know, in doing the Lord's work of babbling uncontrollably and senselessly about comics, um, we may have some information about that coming to you very soon. Oh, yeah. Also, listener, anyway. you'll, be, you'll be happy to know that we have gone paperless. We're operating out of fully digital comics now. So we are, our carbon footprint just got real small or a little exactly. bit smaller. We do it for you, listener and Greta. Yes. To save money and the environment. That's like a bonus for us. Yes. It's very much kind of like the secondary effect of the primary mm-hmm. we wanted. We're we're like a large corporation. Like we're basically going to do what's best for our bottom line. But if we happen to save the environment in the process, then that's just a bonus. Yeah. I'm not trying to deny climate change exists. I'm just trying to do what's best for me and hope that climate change is being fought in addition to what's best for me. I'm not saying that people should throw a ticker tape parade for us for the effort we've put in to saving the environment in America, but I wouldn't be mad if it happened. And that may be available on our Patreon for you (laughs) to donate towards throwing us a ticker tape parade. (laughs) For a certain amount, you can throw us a parade. And you can be in the parade for a moment. All right, listener. Well, yes. And... We didn't mention our social media. You probably know it by now. If you don't, it's readthisway.podcast. If you want to send us an email, it's the same thing, just at gmail.com. And you know what? If you think we're terrible people, listen to another episode and see if you still think we're terrible. (laughs) And then if you feel we're terrible after that still, just keep listening until you maybe change your mind. And if not, you know what? You got some information out of it. (laughs) <laughs> if you know if by then it you know kill us or shut up about it yeah we send you love we send you light in this new year and this new administration i hope that we all see a fruitful um future ahead for all of us and we look forward to you listening next time i'm jace wingate i'm renee pogue and we'll see you next time We'll see you next time, listeners. Bye. Bye.